0: President and CEO at the Murti Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to introduce you to two of my brilliant colleagues at the Murti Law Firm, Jessica Beaver and Joel Janovich, who will join me in our discussion today to talk about the impact of the Trump administration on U.S. immigration policies. I know this is a hot issue, and we had done a couple of sessions, I think, about a year ago, maybe six or eight months ago, And because there's so much going on. And it's a very hot topic because there is so much happening. There's so many changes. We know that candidate Trump often talked about his anti-immigrant rhetoric, but now that he's the president and no longer a candidate, he has been true to his form about really focusing on uh, giving immigrants and employers who hire immigrants a hard time under the Buy American, Hire American sort of executive order. Everything has been focused on how we can turn things around, you know, change things. Basically, really, I think most businesses and employers presumed that because it was a Republican that they would be that he would be pro-business and hence very supportive of employers and businesses. But in fact, that's not necessarily true, as the past year and a half have shown us. So with that, what I'm going to do is we will plan and summarize, like we said, some of these major changes that have happened. And we're going to focus on stuff that's been going on within the past year and. Um, starting right and and we're not going to go back to something from over a year ago which started off of course with the March 2017 H1B memo which was literally introduced on 31st of March to really focus on the level 1 wage issue which created pan- panic a year ago during the H1B cap season as most of you employers on the conference call are aware of. So with that let me have Joel maybe talk and the reason we're focusing on everything dealing that happened with his administration is because Even when we talk about, for example, the travel ban or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, as an employer, if you have employees from one of those countries that have the travel ban, or if you have people in your workforce that your HR has, believes that has the valid work authorization, but it's based on the DACA, those would be relevant issues for you as employers to be aware of. So, with that, let me have maybe Joel start about uh, start the discussion on travel
1: the travel ban. Sure. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, very briefly on the travel ban right now, the travel ban applies to individuals from six majority Muslim nations, which are Iran, Libya, Syria, Somalia and Yemen. The ban also applies to North Koreans and certain government officials from Venezuela. Um, just uh, about a week, week and a half ago on on April 25th, uh, 2018, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments over the legality of the travel ban as it applies to the individuals from the majority Muslim nations. Um, there was a separate lawsuit uh, regarding the Venezuelans and North Koreans, but this is only related to um, those six Muslim uh, nations. Um, right now, we don't know for sure how the court's going to rule, but predictions are that they are going to uphold uh, allowing the travel ban. So, again, if you have any employees from those six countries, um, it's problematic. They may not be able to travel, or if they're out in the country, may be able, not be able to get back in.
2: But we do want to emphasize that we're still filing green cards on behalf of these employees from these countries. So not to worry, it doesn't um, far reach us as to filing applications for applicants from those countries. Okay. So, Jessica, do you want to discuss a little bit about the DACA? Sure. So the DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, was the program created by the Obama Obama administration – to provide temporary immigration protections with work and travel authorization to certain undocumented immigrants who are brought here as children. The Trump administration announced in September 2017 that the program was going to be terminated. There have been several, you know, ongoing lawsuits with temporary injunctions challenging the termination of the program, you know, as it currently stands. First time applicants, unfortunately, are not eligible. But right now, the USCS is required to continue processing DACA renewal applications, and the employment authorization, all that. But very recently, I think, even as of a week or two ago,
0: from by a judge. And you know, and, and I know we kind of talk, hinted about this and kind of talked about this, but in fact, a, a lot, or or some, or a lot of what the Trump administration is really doing, is as we've been seeing by executive orders or memos or policy changes or sort of wish list as opposed to an actual change by Congress with a change in the law, which has the force of law. There's not even a regulation interpreting uh, any law that they're talking about. This is all literally coming out of whole cloth to a large extent, more or less, But then I guess somebody could say that Obama, having introduced the DACA uh, itself, was again an executive order trying to help these children who had come when they were young and who are now trying to get work authorizations to stay in the U.S. There's also a whole uh, deal of discussion about something called TPS or temporary protected status for many countries. Uh, So if you have employees in your company or organization that has a TPS, uh, you may need to be to be mindful um, whether they would be allowed to continue to renew the TPS. So just by way of background, TPS basically allows a national of the country that is designated who is in the United States to continue to remain in the United States for a certain period of time because of conditions in there, in that person's home country, that would prevent that person from returning back there. So for example, you have when there's an armed conflict, when there's some kind of an environmental disaster, an epidemic. We've heard of earthquakes, uh, other extraordinary temporary conditions, you know, war, et cetera, unusual situations. So an individual who is granted the TPS is protected temporarily against being deported or removed from the United States. And during, while they have that TPS, the person is eligible to apply for the work authorization And sometimes maybe a travel authorization. So we've seen that the Trump administration has already taken steps to terminate TPS designation for more than half a dozen countries, including terminating for El Salvador, who, by the way, the El Salvadorians have literally been here for like, what, 10, 15, 20 years at this point. I mean, a really long time. You have Haiti, Haiti, you have Liberia and most recently as of like just a few weeks ago i guess in april of this year in this um you know uh, in nepal so employers with workers on tps should really monitor the status of the the program check when the employment authorization document is expiring because if they lose their tps they some of these people may have to plan to depart the us so You as an employer need to be careful and your employees need to consult with an attorney to see if there is any other option available. The next thing that's become mandatory in the Trump administration is the issue of I-485, adjustment of status applicants who are going through the employment-based process. And I'm going to request Jessica to talk a little bit about that.
2: So basically under the Trump administration, he made an announcement in March of 2017 that all employment-based cases based on I-140 petitions, as of October 1st, would have to have the interview. So as long as you filed after that March 6, 2017, you're going to have that employment-based interview. Just wanted to let you know, though, that about 12 or so years ago, that was still the climate then so not to worry, it has you know, there has been mandatory interviews before and even during the time when there's not been, there have been a random selection of interviews. So interviews have been have been around. So do they only do it for cases filed after in March or is it actually because I thought sometimes I'm they seeing... they still do random interviews. Let's say that you had um, an issue that maybe they couldn't resolve by looking at your application, perhaps a criminal issue, or they had questions about your employment, they may bring you in. So there's always been that random chance. So the four eighty five should have been filed after a October 1st? No, no, after March 6, 2017, it went into effect as of October 1st. So any I 45 application filed after that March 2017 date is likely going to get that mandatory interview. So, but if it was filed years ago, it's not going to be, not, except for to right, right, not gonna get the mandatory interview, but still could get the okay. random interview. You know, we've seen it happen before where perhaps a person has a criminal issue or a status issue that the officer can't resolve without having them in person. Okay. Um, and basically, one of the concerns, you know, that people have is that the officers are asking for really detailed information. So, your employees really need to know their application backwards and forwards because they do go through the application with them in the interview, as well as going over details in their labor certification and I-140 petition, really knowing what they're being sponsored for, um, and even going over something such as, you know, their marriage, because they happen to be married to someone, even though it's an employment-based, employment-based interview. Another problem with these interviews that we're kind of seeing is that it's going to kind of slow down the green card process. The local offices, you know, not only do a plethora of things like InfoPass appointments and naturalization uh, interviews, they now are going to have this uh, high level of green card application interviews as well. So as the employer, when your uh, employee has the interview, you can just make sure they're most prepared by knowing what they're being sponsored for and, you know, having them go over their application.
1: And perhaps having an attorney present with, with the person during the interview, a lot of people are, are looking into doing that now because there's a lot of concerns over being kind of bombarded with questions that maybe you, you didn't feel comfortable answering.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And that, is, and that is something that we at the Murphy Law Firm do also. You're entitled to take an attorney even if they didn't file the application for you. You could still attend the interview with them.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, so employers on this conference call should seriously consider recommending to their employees, to consult with an attorney or take an attorney, especially if there's gray areas or issues or changes of employer. The person probably is no longer with the sponsoring employer and you as the new employer have filed a Supplement J and now this employee is with you. This important valued resource slash employee slash consultant is working for your consulting company and now you're a little bit concerned about whether this could get delayed or denied. Uh, For the person and therefore prevent the person from continuing to work. Okay, so Joel, let's look at site visits What's going what's the update going on there?
1: So site visits have been around for a while Um, They've been used initially for uh, largely for H-1B work sites um, looking for possible violations that was expanded to also add uh, L1 employees Um, One big change under the Trump administration is that um, before they tended to be random, uh, to to an extent they were randomly selected. Now they have become a little bit more focused, um, and they're specifically looking for H-1B-dependent employers. They're more likely to to do site visits for you and employees, uh, H-1B employees that are located off-site at third-party work locations. H-1 and L-1 H-1 and L-1. Mm-hmm. So, for for those employers, uh, for employees that are in that, wh- I think this is a good time to remind you, you really need to now more than ever uh, take the time, self-audit your public access files, your I-9 records. Um, everything that you're doing that immigration may want to take a look at, you need to make sure that they are done properly, everything's in order Um I can tell you, you you very, very possibly, very want to consider hiring an attorney to do an audit for you. Um, And I can tell you with absolute certainty, it is far less expensive to do kind of a protective audit ahead of time, as opposed to after the officers knocked on your door and you've started to run into problems. It can get very, very expensive at that point because you're you're then dealing with a, a a ongoing investigation. So. Doing things proactively is highly, highly recommended.
0: Okay. Well, that makes sense. And I know we have a team here at the Multi Law Firm that helps go over it and can just do a few random samples just to make sure that the HR person, if it's somebody else or if it's you, that's just to make sure that you set up your processes and systems properly because prevention, as we always know, is cheaper than cure. Um, And and really, it's like your I-9 records, your public access files, your wage records, because that's a big deal is your wage related documents. The next big thing that we are seeing, the next important item with the Trump administration is that they issued a memo on October 23rd of 2017, which at this point is about, you know, a little over six months ago, ending deference for prior petition approvals or decisions. So they basically, the USCIS issued a policy memo basically retracting or revoking or changing their prior, rescinding a prior policy from 2004 and portions of a 2015 policy memo that gave respect or deference to a prior previously issued approval. This new policy is, again, we believe, partially based on his Buy American, Hire American initiative of the Trump administration, because it makes the petition process less consistent, less reliable. It requires the employer to have to basically dot the I's and cross the T's, make you far more diligent to ensure that everything really where the applicant, you as the employer qualified, the employee truly is able to meet all of the different prongs to satisfy the requirement and meet the legal criteria to be eligible, whether it's an H-1B, L-1, O-1, P-1, et cetera, et cetera, even when requesting a simple extension of an H-1 or an L-1, for example, or filing amendments for your workers. The next important memo is the memo about H-1B workers placed off-site, which, again, Jessica is going to
2: speak about. So this was another uh, memo that got released during a cap season when everyone's very busy. Uh, came out February 22nd of 2018 this year, basically relating to H-1B petitions filed for workers who will be employed at one or more third-party or end-client work sites. Um, the memo specifically focuses on staffing companies that use the petitioner-vendor-client relationship, which is very common in the, in the IT industry. One issue that's focused on in the new memo is the requirement for non-speculative qualifying employment for the duration of the entire H-1B position. Historically, we've had contracts or related documents submitted to have only covered a portion of the period that the H-1B was requested for. The USCIS would often limit the H-1B approval to a one-year period. Although the memo has only been in effect a couple of months, we've seen some instances where the USCIS will truncate an approval to the exact dates of the contract you know even as little as one to two months
1: yeah i I think it's important to understand so uh, this all this memo also applies for h-1b extensions um so one thing that per the memo they're doing is they want to make sure that the individual who is filing for an extension has maintained status for the entire period so normally what, what had been done historically is you would file an extension with maybe the last two or three pay stubs. Um, you're showing the, the, the ability, the, the future work assignment. Now you potentially are going to have to show pay stubs for the entire period. You may have to show, um, you know, the contracts to show that the contracts were available for the entire period if there is a contract involved. Um, if you don't, what may happen is USCIS may still approve the petition, but then deny the extension of status request. And what that means is typically the person's going to have to go um, go abroad, um, very possibly going to have to go to the consulate to get a, a new H-1B visa foil or stamp. And as everybody knows, going for stamping, as people like to call it, going to going for stamping nowadays um, it, it has its own risks and so a lot of people actively actively avoid having to leave the country um, and when you file something like this where you don't maybe have maybe there was like a, a a few weeks where, where you had been uh, an employee well that's that's always been a problem and here that problem is more likely to surface um, also, per the memo, the USCIS also appears to be expecting um, more in the way of documents verifying that there's a valid employer-employee relationship and that it's going to be maintained. So, again, you're going to need to very thoroughly proper, uh, document um, these cases to make sure that they're uh, as approvable as possible.
2: Okay. What about uh, STEM OPT workers? I'm gonna briefly mention the newest thing that we've uh, kind of seen is STEM OPT workers not being able to be placed offsite. Recently, it's come to light that the USCIS has has altered its policy. Keep in mind that the reason it was altered is because they changed their website. Um, there was no regulation or anything published other than just you know changing their website, um, basically indicating that offsite employment for STEM OPT is prohibited. I do want to mention that we're actually going to run a teleconference just on this hot issue next uh, on Monday, May 7th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that our attorneys can go into detail kind of with this very hot topic issue that was kind of put on the USCIS's website. But the USCIS is
0: still approving all these. But, I mean, they're approving the form 983s, because I've been talking to companies so far, they're approving it. So I don't know if they realize that what they've done is illegal or ultra virus or improper and they're afraid of a lawsuit. But they're approving these cases now. we don't know if then the FDNS officer or when the ice inspector comes in and checks whether that's going to be like, haha, you're not allowed. Look at this website. But where's the memo? Where's the guide? Even memo is anyway not enforceable under court of in in, in, in any court of law or otherwise. So you need either the statute or you need a regulation or you need, you know, something. The government's just literally grabbing pieces of nothing. And most employers uh, and individuals are afraid to challenge the government, which is where I think we're seeing a lot of the problems where the government's acting uh, like, what do they say, the judge, the jury and the executioner all put rolled into one. So let's now briefly discuss uh, some of the changes that are likely to happen in the relatively near future. Uh, At some point, there is uh, little reason to believe that Congress is going to pass any of the president's legislative proposals relating to immigration, whether it's Republicans or Democrat Congress, because we see that they're not very thrilled with the way things are going on so we we will be going into so we will not go into the topics that would require congress to act for instance we've seen the president's desire to create some form of points based system which could only be done through an act of congress similarly the elimination of various family based categories which trump has advocated by calling them referring to them as chain migration and let's eliminate you know family sponsorships uh, everything except for a husband or wife or spouse. So let's eliminate siblings, brothers and sisters filing for each other, or let's eliminate a parent, a, a child filing for the parent, etc. That all that needs c- uh, Congress to bless those kinds of changes. So instead, we can again discuss possible changes that the Trump, as a president, may may possibly make, either via like he has been doing executive orders, memos, or possibly by regulation, which. I don't know, because regulations take decades sometimes to get issued. Um, So all of these are proposals that were mentioned in an April 4th, 2018 letter by the USCIS director, Francis Cisna, to U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. So it sounds like the USCIS is actively pursuing or considering these changes now, of course, the first, the big one, which may impact many of you as employers, is many of the people on the H4EAD program where the spouse has the I 140 approval. So maybe, Joel, I'll have you discuss that briefly.
1: Yeah, so one thing to understand for the right now, the H4EAD program remains in effect unchanged. Um, new applications, renewals, they're going to continue to be processed as normal. Um, unfortunately, there are, we have from, from several indicators showing that they are planning on getting rid of the program. Um, to do that, they're going to have to go through the regulatory process, and that does take some time. But when they put their minds to it, it can be done in, you know, a matter of months. It doesn't have to take years, as a lot of regulations do. Um, so at the for the last we heard, um, the regulations were not going to be issued before June. So. Potentially, they could be issued as, as soon as basically a month from now. Um, may take longer than that, though. Once they are issued, those are going to be proposed regulations. They don't go into effect right away. They're just a proposal. Um, at that point, you're going to have time for, for, uh, to, for the public is going to have a, time to comment on those. The USCIS then has to consider them. The DHS has, has to consider the comments, And only then could they potentially issue the final regulation. Um, One of the questions we always get asked is, well, what happens if I have an EAD, it's valid for two years, and then the final regulation is published to end the program? Is my EAD still valid? And our response to that is, we don't know yet. We're going to have to wait for the regulations to get published. Presumably, they would address that question. And then, if they addressed it in a manner where they said they're going to terminate it, whether you have the EAD or not... Presumably, there are going to be lawsuits, and those lawsuits could potentially lead to extending the program for additional period. But again, for the time being, I think it's safe to assume at some point the program is very likely going to be terminated.
0: Yeah. And, you know, if people say, well, as a lawyer, tell me when they sort of people when I talk to people on the phone, they always say, Miss Murthy, please tell me, do you think and my if I had to guess, it would be that if you have a valid EAD for two years or three years, it's probably going to be valid, like with the DACA kids, where they let them continue to have it till the date of its validity. Because like Joel just said that the risk of a lawsuit and them being challenged on it would be much greater with somebody who assumed that or presumed that they have a facially valid document valid for one, two or three more years. Um, I also believe that if somebody is already using an EAD and working, that it's going to be more difficult to impact those people because they have a stronger lawsuit because they can explain how they maybe bought their home or their car and their assets and their lives changed because of the two incomes. But that's where you get into this gray area because we don't know if the government's going to be like, well, we don't care. Uh, Now, again, as we said, we need the notice and rulemaking period. We need time. This is not going to happen in the next week or two or month or two because you need the time for the government to introduce it and to get back comments from people. And we know for a fact that there will be a lot of comments because this impacts families in a very, very big way. The next big issue, of course, that we think is about to come down the pike is some kind of a registration in order for employers
2: to apply under the H-1B lottery system. So in 2011, the USCIS issued a proposed regulation that would have required companies to pre-register for the H-1B lottery. The lottery would be conducted of those companies that had pre-registered, and only then would the employers be able to file the H-1B petitions. As with many proposed regulations, nothing came of it. Uh, no final regulation was ever issued, so it was never adopted. However, the Trump administration now plans on resurrecting this and perhaps retooling this proposal. What the final rule may look like remains a mystery. So that's kind of crazy. So there was a
0: regulation that was a proposed regulation that would that was issued in 2011 That's just sat there collecting dust, didn't go through any of the hoops. Uh, so they have some language in there. Um, but that would be interesting because if I find an employee now, I, I don't know when I would have had the cut off. And now already you have to wait six months for the start date on October 1st. Uh, And now you're telling me I should have known six months or a year. And so you're really the ones who are only ones who will register are those who are uh, large volume processors. So a company that does one or two every three or four years doesn't know what employee will apply for a tech position is basically being short shifted. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so I guess for the people on this conference call, though, presumably it's very helpful because you, if you're regular H-1B employers or L1 employer, you know, H-1 employers that regularly use the program, you will be able to register compared to other employers that are random employers that use them once in a while. Um, next, there's been a regulation to sort of redefine what's called the specialty occupation. And I'm sure most of you as employers are seeing RFEs and denials routinely because that's actually In the statute or in the black letter law itself, the term specialty occupation is being integral to obtaining the H-1B petition approval. Right now, there's not much in the way of any details regarding what type of regulation will redefine what's a specialty occupation, Um, but... It certainly is alarming because we think the statute is clear and complex enough where it says you need at least a bachelor's degree to do the job and it should be you know, fairly complex, etc. Apparently, we believe that based on Trump going on and on trumpeting about how the regulation would make changes to focus on getting only the best and brightest workers to the U.S. on H-1B status, whatever the term best and brightest means. And that's where I think they started with the high salaries last year in their March 31st, 2017 memo, saying if its person is so amazing and so awesome that you want the person, then the person shouldn't be paid at a level one wage. We also believe that this specialty occupation regulation could revise the definition of employer-employee relationships and how we it would be done is obviously not clear at this stage. But given the history in general with RFEs, the history of this administration, we know that it will be an excuse to try to clamp down on H-1B workers who are being placed off-site. We also believe that this regulation could include additional requirements relating to salaries paid to workers. Again, of course, we don't have any details at this time, but we believe that there, there may be something in the horizon. But we don't know. Again, again, I'm not making a political statement here. All I am saying is from an immigration lawyer point of view, it is certainly extremely troubling to see that a country, a nation built by immigrants. And everybody here is an immigrant except for possibly Native Americans. Um, For a person where, you know, as I often say, two of your three wives were immigrants and your, your grandfather, I guess, came was an immigrant. It's very interesting that he would have such an anti-immigrant negative attitude to immigrants with his current wife still being an immigrant and her bringing her family through chain migration, I might add. Um, but, you know for all of those who say you know what there's a lot going on I didn't get all of it you are certainly welcome to sign up and go check on the murti.com website because we have a section on the administration or Trump you know with daily literally daily updates that we are posting at on murti.com for you both as employers and for you to share with your employees on possible changes that have happened that may happen, etc. cetera. We obviously have the free multi bulletin, the free multi weekly chat, the Murti forum, the multi.com website to help you all keep up with these crazy, crazy, crazy changes that are happening on the current administration. So with that, on behalf of Jessica Beaver, Joel Yanovich, uh, myself, Sheila Muthi, and our entire Murti Law Firm team. We thank you for joining us today. We do not mean to alarm you. We just mean to educate and empower you so you know how to respond to issues. We certainly look forward to continuing to help you on behalf of all of us at the Murti Law Firm. Thank you and have a great afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murti Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our
1: services, and more at www.murthy.com.